In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 18, The Eaton Affair. It was a brisk morning in Washington, D.C., as President Andrew Jackson ushered his cabinet members into a White House meeting room. Among them were special guests Reverends Ezra Stiles Ely and John N. Campbell. They had been invited to consult on an issue of moral delicacy. Notably missing was Jackson's own vice president, John C. Calhoun, who had retreated back to his plantation home in South Carolina with his spouse. Secretary of War John Eaton was also absent, but he hadn't been invited. As the topic at hand was his wife. With palpable discomfort, the group began to discuss whether Eaton's new bride, Peggy, was a woman with an adulterous past. Jackson defended her. The president was incensed that such a dear lady, the wife of one of his closest friends, could be victim to such cruel accusations. But despite his best arguments, the room was divided. Both reverends and several cabinet members remained convinced that the gossip surrounding Peggy Eaton was true, that she was indeed a scarlet woman. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're talking about The Eaton Affair a real Housewives of Washington, D.C. tale that led President Andrew Jackson to force the resignations of nearly all of his cabinet members. We'll get into the drama right after this. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If Capitol Hill had a menu in the 1800s, its signature dish would have been a salacious stew of gossip and government. The Eaton Affair was no exception, mixing hearsay with political fallout that would shape America's future. 
However, the instigators of this particular affair weren't the surly, wig-clad males of Washington, but ladies in petticoats, all roasting one woman in particular, Peggy Eaton, the daughter of a Scots-Irish innkeeper from Washington, D.C. Her exclusion by political society would inspire both the downfall of an executive cabinet and the making of a future president. But to set the context for the vicious rumors surrounding Peggy Eaton, let us first meet her predecessor, President Jackson's wife, Rachel Jackson. Rachel Donaldson Robards Jackson was a divorcee, the former wife of a gentleman named Louis Robards. After three unhappy years of marriage, the pair separated in 1790 and 20-year-old Rachel returned to her family's estate in Nashville, Tennessee. Accompanying her on the journey home was 23-year-old Andrew Jackson. The pair quickly fell in love and were married in 1791. But just two years into their nuptial bliss, they received some shocking news. Robards had not finalized the divorce after all. Legally, he and Rachel were still married. The situation wasn't totally unheard of. At the time, divorce proceedings were imprecise, often due to shifting territories and differing state laws. This was evidenced in the reaction, or lack thereof, from Nashville society to the couple's plight. They didn't find the Jackson situation much to gossip about. Rachel's divorce from Robards was swiftly finalized, and she and Andrew Jackson quietly renewed their vows. Nevertheless, after 33 happy years of marriage, their past came back to haunt them. Jackson's 1828 presidential campaign will be covered in a future episode, but suffice it to say, a lot of mud was slung between Jackson's nascent Democratic Party and its rivals, the sitting President John Adams and the National Republican Party. Jackson's opponents emphasized his famous temper, painting him as overly passionate and undisciplined. They warned that a Jackson presidency would be the moral downfall of America, and they held up Rachel as proof, calling her an adulteress and a bigamist. One Republican paper inquired, Ought a convicted adulteress and her paramour husband to be placed in the highest offices of this free and Christian land? Never mind that 61-year-old Rachel was a devout Presbyterian who read her Bible daily. For political purposes, the opposition labeled her a scarlet woman who would morally stain the White House. Jackson was powerless to shield his wife from these cruel depictions. Devastated throughout her husband's 1828 campaign, she suffered a deep depression and hid herself away from the world. In the days leading up to the election, Rachel lamented that she would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than live in that palace in Washington. Unfortunately, she got her wish. Just a few weeks after Jackson won the election in early December 1828, Rachel suffered a heart attack and died. Despite her pre-existing health problems, Andrew Jackson blamed Rachel's sudden death on the stress from the election. As he laid his beloved wife to rest, he uttered a statement that would underpin his future dealings in the Eaton Affair. May God Almighty forgive her murderers. I never can. 
It was with this attitude of stubborn vengeance that the 61-year-old president-elect prepared to take office. In fact, in the months leading up to his inauguration, it seeped into another issue close to Jackson's heart. He was more determined than ever to support the wedding of one of his dearest friends, Senator John Eaton of Tennessee, to a controversial young woman. Her name, of course, was Peggy. Margaret O'Neill, or Peggy, as her friends and family knew her, came from an unassuming background. She was born in 1799, the daughter of Scots-Irish immigrants who owned the Franklin House, a popular boarding lodge in Washington, D.C. Back then, most congressmen and senators opted for temporary lodging in Washington. The Franklin House was often their hotel of choice when Congress was in session. The men enjoyed its modest accommodations and gathered together in its tavern for evening shop talk. Most guests were regulars, Politicians Peggy had known since she was a child when she perched on their knees and listened to their conversations after dinner. It was there that young Peggy learned to cultivate her own opinions, which she voiced with increasing liberty as she grew older. As her teen years approached, Peggy developed into a striking beauty with dark hair and piercing blue eyes. She attended one of Washington's best schools for girls, where she excelled in every subject, including music and dance. First Lady Dolly Madison herself crowned 12-year-old Peggy the best dancer at a local ball in 1812. With her position on the fringes of Washington's high society, it was only a matter of time before she was discovered by a prominent suitor. However, Peggy's upbringing, much as it prepared her for the upper echelons, would ultimately hold her back. As a teenager, she helped out her family's business by working in Franklin's Tavern. Females didn't set foot in bars and rarely worked in them. Any woman who did was looked down on as promiscuous. What's more, Peggy didn't hesitate to insert herself in men's political discussions, speaking with unusual candor and wit for a young lady of her era. Genteel ladies were not to voice political perspectives, much less cast these opinions alongside men. And as Peggy began showing her face at more social events, rumors circulated among the women of Washington that she was serving Franklin House patrons as more than just the barmaid. Peggy furthered this stereotype by attempting to elope in 1814, when she was just 15 years old. As she herself boasted in later years, while I was still in pantalettes and rolling hoops, I had the attention of men, young and old, enough to turn a girl's head. Meanwhile, Washington's politicians actually praised Peggy, having witnessed the breadth of her intellect from a young age. But this only fueled awareness and disdain towards her by the women of upper society. It was difficult for them to fathom how someone like Peggy, so free-spirited and with so many male acquaintances, could possibly be chaste. And virtuous or not, her blithe personality was unwelcome in many a parlor. Various women made a point to snub the teenager, beginning with the next First Lady, Elizabeth Monroe. Other hostesses followed suit making sure young Peggy got the memo to never set foot on their porches. Then, in 1816, 17-year-old Peggy O'Neill married someone who is considered closer to her own social rank, 
a 39-year-old Navy purser named John Timberlake. For being a ship's accountant, Timberlake was terrible at handling his own money. When the pair married, he was already deep in debt. In an attempt to dig himself out, he quit his position at the Navy and set up a shop next door to the Franklin House. But this venture only added to his bills. During this time in 1818, the young couple met a new boarder, 28-year-old widower and senator of Tennessee, John Eaton. The three became fast friends. Eaton even petitioned the Senate to forgive Timberlake's debts in 1821. But his efforts were unsuccessful, and by 1823, Peggy's husband had returned to his old post in the Navy to make a living. In his absence, he transferred guardianship of his wife and their two young daughters over to Eaton. Timberlake hoped his compatriot would keep an eye out for the family's well-being. And he did. Around this same time, Eaton introduced Peggy to his friend and fellow Tennessee senator at the time, Andrew Jackson. Jackson called Peggy the smartest little woman in America. He gushed about her in letters home to Rachel, saying how they all enjoyed Peggy's piano playing on Sunday evenings. This was innocent praise. Rachel Jackson met and approved of Peggy herself during a visit to Washington in 1824. But the Jacksons, Senator Eaton, and the other Franklin House boarders were fairly isolated in their regard. With her husband away at sea, Peggy set many local tongues wagging once more. Mrs. Timberlake was not doing as the good wives of deployed Navy men did, sitting at home and pining for their husbands. She was out on the town with Eaton as her escort, and they were frequently seen conversing with each other at the Franklin House. Peggy herself called Eaton, my husband's friend, a pure, honest, and faithful gentleman. Their socializing apparently took place with the full knowledge and trust of Timberlake and under the nose of Peggy's own family, no less. Still, it wasn't hard for outsiders to imagine what else she and Eaton might be up to. Before long, the society members who had once deemed Peggy promiscuous devolved into calling her an adulteress. As a woman, Peggy's reputation was more mercilessly assaulted than Eaton's. One rumor was so bold as to suggest that she had recently miscarried another man's child, insinuating that her husband had been gone too long to be the father. Thus, a tense social atmosphere set the tone for early 1828 while Jackson was campaigning for the presidency. Barely three months later, on April 2nd, 29-year-old Peggy received word that Timberlake, who frequently suffered from emotional distress, had died at sea. It would later be rumored that he had slit his own throat. Peggy, for one, refused to believe her husband had killed himself, maintaining he had accidentally cut himself in a fit of asthma. But Washington society was quick to assume the worst. Gossip emerged that Timberlake had caught wind of his wife's affairs and had committed suicide out of grief and shame. These accusations took on a more serious tone when Peggy and Eaton announced their engagement in December of 1828, a mere eight months after Timberlake's death. Up to this point, the rumors surrounding the relationship had been idle gossip, attempts to further shun Peggy from social gatherings. But now, 
the whispers seem all the more valid. And with Peggy's foot on the threshold of political society, the opposition against her took a turn for the worse. Coming up, a social scandal becomes political. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. 1828 was a whirlwind year. That April, John Timberlake slit his throat at sea, leaving behind his 28-year-old wife Peggy and their two young daughters. Then in December, Andrew Jackson both won the U.S. presidency and lost his wife, Rachel. Tying all this together, an engagement was soon announced between Jackson's friend, Senator John Eaton, and the widowed Mrs. Timberlake. Washington society was already convinced that John Timberlake had committed suicide because Peggy was cheating on him with Eaton, a rumor that would never be confirmed. Now, onlookers were shocked that the pair would remarry a mere eight months after Timberlake's death. Back then, it was customary for a woman to wait at least a year, if not two, before remarrying. A sexist standard granted that men were only expected to mourn for six months. Meanwhile, the president-elect supported their engagement. Jackson reportedly told his friend Eaton, Why, yes, Major, if you love the woman and she will have you, marry her by all means. And marry they did, on New Year's Day of 1829, defying all the raised eyebrows in Washington. Politicians like Maryland's Louis McLean quipped that Eaton had just married his mistress, and the mistress of 11 dozen others. Even Margaret Bayard Smith, the forward-thinking wife of a newspaper publisher, had a scathing review. On the day of the wedding, Smith wrote a letter describing Peggy. She has never been admitted into good society, is very handsome and of not an inspiring character, and violent temper. The ladies declare they will not go to the wedding, and if they can help it, will not let their husbands go. It's worth briefly examining why women like Smith accused Peggy of having violent temper and what their deeper motives were in avoiding her. Throughout her life, 
Peggy had several elite friends who rose above the gender conventions, appreciating her free spirit and political opinions. But to many, her charisma was interpreted as a lack of self-control, something both inappropriate for genteel women and which furthered the rumors surrounding Peggy. In the early 1800s, women were considered the moral gatekeepers of society. As hostesses, they held great power. The ladies in Washington especially saw themselves as the rudders of morality, meant to steer the young nation towards virtue and piety. In light of this, rebuffing Peggy Eaton was not a simple act of meanness or jealousy. It was a moral choice, meant to preserve both their own reputations and the standards of high society. It was their duty to snub her for the greater good. Which is why it was so alarming when Peggy married Senator Eaton, further ingratiating herself in political society. And as word surfaced that Jackson might make her husband one of the cabinet members, the wives and daughters of Washington's elite steeled themselves for a scandalous rebuttal. In 1829, President-elect Jackson was eager to include Senator Eaton in his new cabinet, given their long history as friends. Eaton had served as an aide to General Jackson during his army days, and the pair had been senators of Tennessee together in the early 1820s. In fact, Eaton's marriage to Peggy only strengthened Jackson's resolve to promote his friend. The president-elect was outraged by the gossip that called Peggy an adulteress, not least of all because it echoed recent accusations against his late wife, Rachel. With her death just weeks behind him, Jackson was poised to stick it to the same political society whom he believed had killed her. Jackson had already earned the name Old Hickory for good reason. His stubbornness and quick temper could be flipped on instantly. When concerns were voiced about Peggy's reputation, he flared up, saying, Do you suppose that I have been sent here by the people to consult the ladies of Washington as to the proper persons to compose my cabinet? And so, Jackson selected John Eaton for his cabinet early that spring, naming him Secretary of War. The irony of this would become increasingly clear. Meanwhile, Jackson had long since chosen his vice president, a politician by the name of John C. Calhoun. The man was no stranger to the White House. Calhoun was presently serving as vice president to John Adams, but the pair had become estranged in their political views. Realizing he was no match against Adams' second presidential campaign, Calhoun had crossed party lines, volunteering as Jackson's running mate. It was a shrewd move. Calhoun could serve as Veep for another term if Jackson were elected, positioning himself to become his successor after two terms. Or perhaps he wouldn't need to wait that long. One needed only to look at Jackson to know the man was in terrible help. Old Hickory was rotting from the inside out. At 62 years old, Jackson suffered from chronic pulmonary infections, malaria, dyspepsia, osteomyelitis, bronchitis, and decaying teeth, to name a few. Calhoun likely hoped that before the next four, or eight years were up, the new commander-in-chief would drop dead, leaving the reins to him. In the meantime, though, he had little control over Jackson's appointment of Eaton. 
or his own wife's reaction to it. March 2nd, 1829, the day of Jackson's inauguration, arrived, and the wives of Washington had their first chance to publicly flaunt their disdain towards Peggy. Calhoun's wife, Florida, was chief among the detractors. Florida had tolerated a visit from the Eatons after their wedding just weeks before. But she had since determined that the buck would stop there, refusing to repay the visit. Now, as the who's who of Washington rubbed shoulders during the presidential ball, Florida made her intentions clear. And it seemed she'd already bent the ears of other political ladies. Together, they made a marked effort to ignore the president's little friend, Peg. One by one, they swooshed past Mrs. Eaton in their skirts and curls, refusing so much as to look at her. All hopes Peggy may have had about their acceptance were instantly dashed, and any ladies who might have begun the day wondering how to behave towards Peggy would have noticed Florida's example. This was more than petty conduct. Dinner parties and balls were the crux of Washington bureaucracy, an arena for men to make new contacts and women to forge key relationships between political families. As a cabinet wife, Peggy was now one of the most important women in Washington, and she was certainly one of the leading ladies of the Democratic Party. For her to be spurned by the vice president's wife and other cabinet women spelled a huge problem for the fledgling party. As the weeks turned into months, the Eaton affair emerged as a political scandal right smack in the middle of Jackson's cabinet, the proverbial elephant in the room. With the ladies of Washington at its helm, onlookers sometimes referred to the scandal by its other nickname, the Petticoat War. It would have been far easier if Jackson had heeded the writing on the wall and quickly dismissed Eaton once the scandal became apparent. But Jackson dug in his heels with a vengeance. He was determined to see Peggy's reputation come full circle, both for her sake and for his beloved late wife. The president even went so far as to postpone his inaugural cabinet dinner for the foreseeable future, literally giving the ladies more time to mend their differences. Yet, as a man, Jackson's actions held decidedly less sway in a female-regulated society. Even Florida's husband, John Calhoun, would helplessly wonder about, quote, the difficulties in which Florida's behavior would probably involve me. The implications for Calhoun's career remained to be seen. Meanwhile, Peggy continued in the genteel pastime of leaving her calling card at the homes of other politically connected women. Custom mandated that these ladies return the favor by paying a visit to the Eaton household at a later date. But as weeks turned into months, Peggy's drawing room remained disappointingly empty. As Eliza Johnston, the wife of a Louisiana senator, admitted, the movement to exclude Peggy seemed, quote, arbitrary. She seemed to feel bad for Peggy. Nonetheless, she felt obligated to leave her calls unreturned. In the meantime, it wasn't surprising, though certainly unfair, that Peggy's husband, John Eaton, remained in decent favor with Washingtonians. Eaton benefited from a sexual double standard regarding male and female conduct. Whether or not the gossip about the couple was true, Peggy was irrevocably tainted in the eyes of society 
while Eaton maintained his favorable reputation. As one politician, Richard K. Call, put it, Eaton had one blemish and a thousand virtues. And so the Petticoat War raged on. Washington wives refused to attend parties where Peggy Eaton would be present, save for those unavoidable events involving foreign legations and certain White House parties. When they were obligated to show face, they simply continued to ignore Peggy. Perhaps the most astonishing detractor was President Jackson's own niece-in-law and White House hostess, 22-year-old Emily Donaldson. Emily was the wife of Rachel's nephew, Andrew Jackson Donaldson. The young couple had come to live with the widowed president in Washington, with Emily in the acting role of first lady. Donaldson was likely spurred along by the opinion of other cabinet wives like Florida Calhoun, not to mention her own moral compass. And after one call to Peggy, Emily announced that she was, quote, so much disgusted with what I have seen of her that I shall not visit her again. Her disdain was especially evident on July 9th. Both Emily and Peggy's families were journeying from Washington, D.C. to Norfolk, Virginia via steamboat. When Emily became sick and was on the verge of fainting, Peggy politely offered her a fan and some cologne. Emily poignantly rejected. She would rather be rendered unconscious than accept a favor from Mrs. Eaton. The incident left Peggy furious with embarrassment, and she didn't waste time in returning the favor. Later that day, she told Emily's husband, Andrew, that she felt more pity than anything for him and his wife. And Peggy remarked, if things didn't go differently, President Jackson might send them packing back to Tennessee. Andrew bit his tongue. This was one of the select instances able to be parsed out from history's letters where Peggy Eaton's blunt and unladylike nature is especially clear. She didn't hesitate to voice her frustration to her own husband and the sprinkling of friends she did have. These brave friends included Mrs. Catherine Barry, the wife of cabinet member and postmaster general William Barry, as well as a few other political wives. But Emily Donaldson, like most Washington ladies, had firmly made up her mind. She'd give no more than minimal courtesy. She couldn't ban Mrs. Eaton from White House events, but she could certainly keep her shoulder cold as ever. And while President Jackson chose to look the other way in his own household, it was only a matter of time before he would need to address the Eaton affair head on. Coming up, Jackson makes a decision that startles the nation. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? 
sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. As fall of 1829 approached, Andrew Jackson was several months into his first term as president. But so far, the greater portion of his efforts had been spent trying to suppress the vicious rumors surrounding Peggy Eaton. Save for a couple of politicians' wives who dared to pay occasional visits to Peggy, the vast majority of Washington females had decided she was a scarlet woman. They couldn't risk encouraging her kind, much less endangering their own reputations. And this wasn't the only pushback Jackson witnessed against Peggy. His own pastor, Presbyterian minister John N. Campbell, voiced disapproval towards the Eaton woman. Campbell commiserated with another politically connected reverend, Ezra Stiles Ely, who penned a series of letters to the new president, advising Jackson against keeping Eaton in his cabinet. Jackson was furious and more determined than ever to clear Peggy's name. As a sign of his desperation, he even hired private investigators to suss out the rumors surrounding his friend's wife. To his triumph, they returned empty-handed. The president wasn't just upset about the assault on Peggy's character. He was angry that high society, a domain both operated by females and cordoned off to them, should have any bearing on male politics. And so, on September 10, 1829, the president called a famous meeting of the cabinet. He hoped they could hash it all out in the open, putting an end to the Eaton affair once and for all. Peggy's husband, Secretary of War John Eaton, of course, was not present. But neither was Vice President John Calhoun. Calhoun was currently visiting his pregnant wife, Florida, at their home in South Carolina. She had left Washington earlier that year, citing rest and relaxation. But as politician Virgil Maxey plainly pointed out, Florida was simply determined to shun the Eaton woman. Jackson made do with the other cabinet members who were in town and whose wives and daughters had sided against Peggy. These included Secretary of Treasury Samuel Ingham, Attorney General John Berrien, and Secretary of Navy John Branch. Joining them were local reverends Ezra Stiles Ely and John N. Campbell, perpetrators in the moral issue at hand. On the sympathetic side sat just two figures, Postmaster General William Barry, who had known Peggy since she was a little girl and whose wife had been friendly towards Peggy, as well as Martin Van Buren. Van Buren was Jackson's shrewd Secretary of State. As a widower, he had no wife or daughter to cater to, making him immune to the Eaton malaria, as he called it. Over the past few months, Van Buren had continued associating with Peggy, a decision which actively gained him more favor with President Jackson. Now, the men shuffled awkwardly into place as Jackson submitted the evidence, or lack thereof, from his recent investigation. He was determined to bend everyone to his way of thinking, regardless of the persistent rumors. And when one reverend dared to contradict him, Old Hickory yelled, She's as chaste as a virgin! 
In his bullheaded way, Jackson left the meeting thinking he had settled the matter, though he would still withdraw his membership from Reverend Campbell's church. He was even confident enough to reschedule his long-postponed cabinet dinner. When it rolled around two months later in November of 1829, Jackson sat John and Peggy Eaton next to him at the head of the table, making his point clear as ever. Van Buren would later state that the dinner had no very marked exhibitions of bad feeling in any quarter. Nonetheless, the guests hurried awkwardly through their courses and back home again. Not quite the satisfying supper that Jackson had hoped for. The next party was hosted by Van Buren, but the pushback was the same. And this time, the usual cabinet wives and daughters outwardly refused to attend. Jackson may have scolded their husbands, but he couldn't as easily correct their spouses. And as 1829 turned into 1830, the president felt more and more powerless over the scandal. As Senator Daniel Webster wrote in January of 1830, the consequence of this dispute in the social world is producing great political effects and may very probably determine who shall be successor to the present chief magistrate. His words would prove remarkably true. Up to this point, Jackson had harbored suspicions that the so-called Petticoat War had its roots in the opposing National Republican Party. He figured they were propagating gossip against Peggy in order to undermine his administration, much as they had with his late wife Rachel during his presidential campaign. But now, President Jackson wondered if the main perpetrator wasn't within his own cabinet. Not only was Vice President Calhoun the husband of Florida, one of Peggy's first bullies, he also seemed to be advising the other cabinet members who had sided against the Eatons. But what really stirred distrust within the president was Calhoun's increasing tendency to argue against his decisions. Calhoun had already flipped over from the Republican Party, where he'd made himself an enemy of former President John Adams. But even in his reprised role under President Jackson, the man refused to compromise on his pet projects. These included the issue of federal tariffs and states' rights. And when a national import tax passed that would negatively impact the South, Calhoun argued that individual states should be free to nullify federal laws at will. President Jackson disagreed, holding firm to his belief that the federal government has final say over U.S. states. Nonetheless, the lines of opinion were drawn between him and Calhoun, and the chasm would only continue to widen in the following months. It's impossible to address the Eaton affair without mentioning the Seminole Letters, a series of memos that led Jackson to believe once and for all that Calhoun could not be trusted. On May 12, 1830, Jackson received a copy of a letter his vice president had written back in 1818, when Calhoun was his boss as Secretary of War. At the time, Jackson had been an army general responsible for defending settlers from Native American Seminole tribes on the Georgia-Spanish-Florida border. Jackson had received orders to not engage with Spanish authorities or chase the Seminoles into Spanish territory. But Old Hickory proceeded, and two British soldiers were executed in the process. 
Naturally, an international uproar ensued, and those higher up in the U.S. Army, including Calhoun, had to decide whether or not to condemn Jackson. Nothing ever came of it, leading Jackson to assume Calhoun had supported his decision. Now, the letters in front of him clearly showed that Calhoun had opposed his military tactics. It was old news, but Jackson was dogged about loyalty. Had he known about this before the election, Calhoun's name likely wouldn't have even made it on the ticket. The rift between them was now irreparable. At this point, Jackson was already at the halfway mark of his first presidential term, and he had spent a good amount of it pulling his hair out over the Eaton affair, and recently, the Seminole letters. Jackson knew he needed to do something to ease the tension in Washington. And so it was, in early 1831, that Secretary of State Martin Van Buren proposed a daring scheme. Over the past two years, Van Buren had been buttering up the president, backing him up on all his decisions and socializing freely with the Eatons. Now, Van Buren offered himself up as a sacrifice. If he resigned from the cabinet, it would pave the way for Jackson to ask for the resignations of other members. Then Jackson would be free to start from scratch, building a stronger and more unified presidential cabinet. Hearing of Van Buren's proposal, Secretary of War Eaton also volunteered to resign. After all, it was his own marriage that had ignited all this drama. Inherently, he and Van Buren knew that they would remain in Jackson's good graces, gone but not forgotten as it were. At his wit's end, Jackson agreed. And in the spring of 1831, barely two years into his first term as president, he fired his entire presidential cabinet. Well, almost all. Postmaster General William Barry was kept on for a couple reasons. First, he had treated Peggy Eaton well. Second, he was facing several allegations of corruption, and Jackson, ever the loyal friend, felt there was a better chance of clearing Barry's name if he remained in office. And despite his heavy part in this debacle, John Calhoun was kept on as well. He was still vice president, after all. It was a shocking turn of events for the watching nation. The press readily traced the cabinet's dissolve back to Peggy. The Washington National Journal even compared it to the reign of Louis XV. Discussions of female influence on male behavior became the absorbing topic of the summer all because of one little woman who the ladies of Washington loved to hate. Meanwhile, a popular toast circulated throughout Washington that went, to the next cabinet, may they all be bachelors or leave their wives at home. As the spring of 1831 turned to summer, Jackson quickly set about organizing his second cabinet. It would prove vastly more effective than the first, strengthening Jackson's hand and thus erasing Calhoun's chances at running against him in the next election. But for the next two years, Calhoun would remain a thorn in the president's side. When Jackson tried to reward Van Buren's loyalty by appointing him U.S. minister to Britain, Calhoun cast the tie-breaking vote against it. He reportedly gloated to a friend that this would kill him, sir, kill him dead. Au contraire, Van Buren bounced back with a vengeance. 
The American public sympathized with him as being the first to go in Jackson's cabinet, and Jackson granted Van Buren the highest honor possible, appointing him as vice president for his second term. The lasting political repercussions owed to Peggy Eaton were clear. Van Buren, who had always remained friendly towards her, went on to become Jackson's vice president and later his successor, reaping the full benefits of his initial resignation. As the 1860s historian James Parton would saucily put it, the political history of the United States for the last 30 years dates from the moment when the soft hand of Mr. Van Buren touched Mrs. Eaton's knocker. As it was, Calhoun resigned his post in 1832, just months before Van Buren was due to take over as vice president. Meanwhile, the Eatons were appointed to Florida, where John Eaton served as governor from 1834 to 1836. After this, he was made ambassador to Spain, where they remained for four years before returning to the States. Eaton spent his remaining career as a lawyer. He died in 1856, leaving his substantial estate to his 57-year-old widow. This time, Peggy waited an acceptable three years before remarrying. The lucky groom was her granddaughter's Italian dance teacher, 19-year-old Antonio Buccagnani. Peggy herself did say that she did not love this third husband. My heart was in the grave with John H. Eaton. And Antonio's heart was with her granddaughter, Emily. Six years later, the young couple ran off to Italy together. They had two children as Antonio continued to siphon money from his legal wife, Peggy. They finally divorced in 1869, leaving 70-year-old Peggy alone and penniless. She died 10 years later at a home for destitute women in Washington, D.C. For someone who had caused such a scandal in her day, her death was anticlimactic. But a small consolation... She had the last word. John and Florida Calhoun, Emily Donaldson, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, and many others involved in the Eaton affair had long since preceded her to the grave. And as Peggy was laid to rest alongside John Eaton, a local newspaper made the astute observation, doubtless among the dead populating the terraces of the cemetery are some of her assailants, Cordially as they may have hated her, they are now her neighbors. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 17, The Tale of Richard Helms, the only CIA director convicted of lying to Congress. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. 
Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Ali Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>